You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Hello and welcome to episode 324 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Matthew Block and I'm your host for today. I'm editor of the Canadian Lutheran Magazine and communications manager for the International Lutheran Council. Joining me today is David Grubbs, uh, still in Houston, Texas, I understand. David, how's semester end treating you? Well, I just got uh, my final grades submitted and that was... um, epic and action-packed as usual. Uh, And for, uh, yes, at the time that we're recording and at the time that this episode posts, we will still be uh, in Houston, or the Houston area, uh, at least. Uh, But uh, the week that this posts, dear listener, uh, we will be uh, moving out of our home and headed towards Birmingham, Alabama, preceded or followed, I'm not sure which, by all of our stuff, which is, you know, going into storage and whatnot. So uh, uh, I, I would crave your prayers because <laughs> uh, it's, it's about to get lit, as the kids say, or at least as they said 10 years ago. <laughs> well, I hope that goes well then. Uh, also with us on the line is Michael Farmer from Sandy Springs, Georgia. Michael, how are you doing? I'm good, Matthew. Mm-hmm. Anything new and exciting with you? Uh, not really. I'm just furiously reading from my classes in the fall, having not taught in a couple of years and having never taught history. So uh, <laughs> there you have it. Well, good luck with that, too. Thank you. <laughs> well, once upon a time, there were two brothers who published a book of fairy tales that would in time become a foundational text of Western literature. Yes, we're talking today about the Brothers Grimm and their famous fairy stories. Most of our listeners will, of course, have heard at least some version of the fairy tales recorded by the Brothers Grimm, Rapunzel, Cinderella, Hansel and Gretel, Rumpelstiltskin, and more. But Michael, who were the Brothers Grimm, and how did they come to write a collection of fairy tales in the first place? What sets apart their approach to the study of fairy tales to Well, uh, there are a couple of philologists and folklorists from the late 18th century, early 19th century in Germany. And philology is a field that scarcely exists anymore. Um, I used to tell my students when I was trying to explain Friedrich Nietzsche that philology is a kind of combination of philosopher, linguist, and literary critic. Uh, and I guess uh, for the Brothers Grimm, you would add folklorist to that. Uh, there's there's a whole host of reasons there aren't philologists anymore. The big one is that it was a uh, is a field dominated by Germans, and then World War One happened. So I would I would say that J.R.R. Tolkien is probably the last the last major philologist of the English speaking world. Would you agree with that, David? Oh, I I 
I couldn't possibly uh, I couldn't possibly give you any, any kind of date as to when the the last of the philologists breathed uh, I, and 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 roamed the plains. Like, I think you know, there are the technically still philologists, but you know yeah. it's not a field people really go into or talk about. Uh, uh, Terry Eagleton well, in his it got divided into other fields, right? Yeah. Terry Eagleton tells this story in uh, Literary Theory and Introduction about about where the English department came from and what philology has to do with it. But you're right. It, it, it kind of got um, split off into the, to the various specialties that go into making it up. And so the Brothers Grimm would today, I'm sure, end up in a department of anthropology uh, or a, a folklore department. Um, so so it, it is important to think of them not as people trying to tell stories to children, um, because a lot of the Grimm's fairy tales are, in fact, not really suitable for children. Um, but as as academic researchers, and they're they're performing this task of of going through Europe and especially Germany and collecting these stories that had survived for hundreds of years in some form in the the kind of oral passage of folklore, right? Um, and all of this is part of a broader move during the Romantic m movement, the Romantic era, to rediscover. Uh, rediscover national literatures or maybe discover national literatures for the first time, especially when you're talking about something like Germany, which is scarcely even a nation at the time they're doing this. Um, but so, so it, it might be helpful if you think of them as, uh, as kind of uh, thematic contemporaries with someone like, like Johannes Brahms, who is, you know, with his Hungarian dances and uh, the, the other, the other kind of romantic composers who take the folk music of their time and turn it into classical music, high art. I think the, the Brothers Grimm are part of that same motion. And what they're doing is is taking these these folk stories and turning them into the subject for academic um, academic research. And and they devote basically their entire professional lives to this. They they put out the first edition of Grimm's Fairy Tales in I think eighteen oh seven and they keep revising and adding to it until the 1850s. And, and in fact, you know, they um, they removed some things because it turns out uh, they, they thought that Charles Perrault's fairy tales were actually folk tales, but they, they weren't, I think, most of them. Uh, and then they end up having to rewrite some on their own because they don't have a good uh, a good oral version of it. And so that some of them are written by the, the Brothers Grimm in addition to just collected by them. Uh, and and the other the other kind of controversial thing about them is that they they see these folk tales as being particularly German to to the extent that the Third Reich uses them as propaganda. I think I I don't know enough about the Brothers Grimm to say whether they would have appreciated that or not. Let's say they wouldn't. Um, but it, in fact, many of these folk tales are not specifically German. They may have German versions, but they're they're kind of universally European folk tales, which makes sense, right? I mean. Uh, if if they do indeed go back hundreds of years, you wouldn't expect them to stay in one place. You would expect them to migrate all over the continent the way people and uh, cultural, uh, other cultural uh, things migrate all over the continent. So that's the Butters Grimm. We, we probably all encountered them in some form when we were kids. Um, everybody listening to this knows 15 or 20 
versions of stories that end up in the Brothers Grimm's books, although you may not know the the kind of famously gruesome versions that do show up uh, in in the Grimm's uh, book. You know, it's it's such a it's such a funny thing that their name is Grimm, and so many of the stories are are so Grimm without two M's. <laughs> Uh, the one that comes to mind is um, the, their version of Snow White features the evil queen being forced to dance herself to death wearing metal shoes that have been heated up in the furnace. So they, they really are quite gruesome, uh, some of them. And some of them are more or less the versions you know from Disney or wherever else. Uh, but the, the important thing is here, this is not for them primarily about coming up with a book of stories for children. It's about preserving European culture and in particular German culture. What am I leaving out? Uh, you get into a lot of it, and it's. I think it's uh, wise to point out how their interest in developing a, a German mythos or a German uh, culture um, does get picked up by the Nazis later. Um, there was a point, even if I understand correctly, I can't remember if it's the States or America, but there were attempts to kind of ban the Brothers Grimm uh, during some of the early wars, which is... I mean, it's it's so well read today. It's almost hard to to imagine that. Um, we should also point out, uh, as a result, that uh, there are a few tales in in the Brothers Grimm that are overtly anti-Jewish, and uh, I mean that happens a lot with historical texts. But we should mention it and acknowledge that they're there. Um, David, was there anything about the Brothers Grimm that you'd like to mention that we're that we haven't mentioned yet? Well, one of the things that animates what the Grimm's are doing is, uh, and this is something that you see in, you know, in in those who practiced uh, this this thing, this weird thing called philology, uh, which is that they saw a real organic connection between. Uh, the stories that are told in a culture and the language that is used in the culture. Um, there's a there's a sense in which um, the stories that that arise in the oral culture of of a language are in some sense fitting fitting to the the character of that language. Now, and a lot of those those uh, categories might seem very strange to us now, um, but they weren't necessarily they weren't necessarily done if if, if that makes sense. Um, so uh, it might seem to us that that uh, a couple of scholars who were making genuinely brown, groundbreaking discoveries in the linguistics of you know that related set of Indo-European languages that we call Germanic um, are also spending their time wandering around listening to great grandmas you know tell stories about you know orphans in the woods and whatnot. Um, but it's because they saw they saw an organic connection between those things that they were studying um, that is maybe less apparent to us uh, today um, with uh, our presuppositions of what undergirds each of these disciplines and what kinds of um, goals those disciplines are even pursuing. Um, uh, the other thing uh, that that I think is 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 interesting. Um, is the degree to which these stories are now associated with children, um, which I, I think that's something we're going to get in as, as, as we go. Um, but they weren't always necessarily. In fact, a lot of stories that show up in Grimm, um, some versions of them end up getting attached to historical persons. Uh, so there, there's one story called The Little Goose Girl 
that a version uh, or a form of that tale ended up actually getting attached uh, to, if I remember rightly, it was Charlemagne's grandmother. Um, so uh, some, sometimes these stories would float around and attach themselves to people <laughs> and in ways that uh, also aren't super expected. Hmm. One uh, final comment I'll make here. While we refer to these tales as, as the Brothers Grimm, uh, the Brothers Grimm's stories, you guys have both mentioned that these are stories that they're recording from other people. And uh, the Brothers Grimm, because they had a very academic interest in this, they've left a lot of information on who these other people were. So I just want to quickly mention that uh, uh, one of their primary sources, Dorothea Freeman, she was a tailor's wife, but she's the source of more than 40 stories in, in the final collection. And uh, one of the stories we're uh, one of the stories we're going to be talking about today, uh, little brother and little sister, actually comes from a w- woman named Marie Hassenflug, and uh, she's also the source uh, in the Brothers Grimm's uh, collection for the stories of Little Red Riding Hood, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, among others. Um, so I just want to acknowledge their involvement, and the Brothers Grimm didn't think that they were, um, you know, creating. A whole new genre of, of text on their own. They're aware of people like um, Perot and also an, an earlier Italian fellow named Basile. But uh, what they're doing is, is a little unique in the sense that they're trying to really preserve, at least at the beginning, the, the authentic tellings of these tales. As time goes on and they become more popular, however, the, the tales themselves go through uh, seven editions. And by the end, uh, they've developed rather substantially compared to their early publications. Um, but today, as I said, we're going to be talking about the story of Little Brother and Little Sister. This isn't a story that's as well known as some of the other tales. Uh, so, David, let's engage in a little oral storytelling of our own. Pretend you're telling this story to your children and tell us the tale of Little Brother and Little Sister. Well, little brother and little sister are two children whose mother dies and their new mother is very bad. (laughs) And so they decide to leave her. However, their new mother is also a witch. And as they are creeping through the forest to escape her, uh, their, their new mother, who is a witch, is using her evil magic to change the the water that they find. Uh, see, they're getting thirsty as they walk, and uh, she's changing the, the water so that if they drink it, they'll turn into animals like tigers and wolves and things like that. But fortunately, as, as they approach them, uh, the little sister hears the water, and the water is saying, if you drink me, you'll become a wolf, or if you drink me, you'll become a tiger. And so... Two times she warns her brother, don't drink, don't drink, and he doesn't. But the third time he's just too thirsty, and she doesn't speak fast enough, and he drinks and becomes a deer. Well, she takes her garter, uh, which is like a belt that you put around your leg, and she puts it around his neck like a collar, and they find a cave that, uh, that they live in, uh, and during the day, the, uh, her brother, the deer, wanders around, and, and she stays 
uh, where she is safe and sound uh, in their their little house, their little hidden house. Um, then one day the king is out and he sees the deer and chases it through the woods. And the, the, the deer comes to the little house and uh, says, little sister, let me in. And the deer comes in and the king thinks, that's strange. And so he follows again the next day and he sees it again. And then again, he follows. And uh, the king surprises the sister uh, and says, uh, we have your brother, the deer, um, but you need to marry me. And so she does and she becomes the queen, but she keeps the deer who she loves very much. Meanwhile, the evil, wicked witch mother, uh, who also has an evil daughter, just as evil as herself, um, hears about the good luck of little brother and little sister, even though little brother is a deer now. And she has a new plan. And so even though little sister, who is now a woman and a queen and has a baby, um, uh, even though. Uh, she is very fortunate, very lucky, having her happy ending story, uh, ex except here comes the witch mother, and she, uh, they, they trap um, little sister, who is now a queen, so we'll call her queen sister. Uh, they trap her, and they kill her, and they replace her with the, uh, the witch mother's daughter. Well, the king is fooled for a little while, but um, the queen somehow keeps showing up at night, I guess it's a ghost, uh, showing up to uh, nurse her little baby and to pet her brother, the deer, and the king sees her. Um, and she shows up many times, but as she speaks, uh, uh, he, as he hears her, um, she's saying, um, how is my child and how is the deer? Um, I'll come two more times, but then never more. And then one last night, uh, she says, how is my child and how is the deer? And I'll come one more time and never more. And then the king waits another night and he hears her say, how is my child and how is my deer? This is the last time and never more. But he leaps towards her and says, you must be my wife. And she says, I am. And she becomes alive again. And so the king has discovered uh, the witch mother's plot, the witch and her daughter are, are trapped and revealed, and the daughter is torn to pieces by animals in the forest, and the witch is burned in a fire. But when that happens, the dear brother turns back into a boy again. I guess a man. I guess he grew up. We're not sure. Doesn't say. And the brother and sister live happily together, presumably with the king and the sister's child, who is now the dear brother's nephew. Niece. Or niece. Was it a daughter? I missed that point. I thought it was. Maybe I'm wrong. Either way, that is a shaggy story. Yeah, it's all <laughs> over the place. <laughs> I kept thinking I knew where it was going to go, and then it went somewhere else. <laughs> it seems no, like this must have been thing. created by accretion over many decades. Like the, This is a story that got passed down and got added to every time, every generation. Well, it's interesting, too, because when you compare this one with the version of the story that appears in the first edition of, of Grimm's uh, fairy tales, uh, there's a lot of additions. So 
I guess the Brothers Grimm uh, decided that it was not ornamented enough. It wasn't elaborate enough. So they've expanded the story quite a bit. Uh, the whole uh, section in which there's the hunt and the king chasing is just one sentence long in the original tale in the first edition. Um, there's only one stream that, that they... That the brother goes to and drinks from. There's not the two before where he doesn't drink. So they've elaborated quite a bit to try to make this a more, I guess, in their sense, a more literary story. And that, and that's something I, I should clarify. That's specifically Wilhelm uh, apparently had the interest in the literary side of things and is responsible for most of the edits in the later editions. Um, in many of, of Grimm's fairy tales, and in this one in particular, mothers play an important role in the story, um, whether for good or for ill. So, Michael, what does this story have to say about the nature of motherhood? And what, if anything, does it have to say about the role of fathers? Well, I'll go ahead and say it doesn't have much to say about the role of fathers. The, the brother and the sister, their father is never mentioned Never mentioned. Never mentioned. And the king uh, just kind of disappears once his child is born. And, you know, he comes back from time to time, but he does not play a major role in the story after the birth of his child. So whatever fathers are doing, um, they're not they're not involved in the story. The the dynamic you see with the mother is one you see in a lot of fairy tales, um, kind of made infamous now by Disney movies. The, the mother dies uh, and then a stepmother comes in and is cruel or wicked or in this case literally a witch uh, and, and so you you have this notion that with the with the natural parents out of the way this evil force is able to come in and and just kind of obsessively chase after these children it's not enough to drive them out of their house she wants to torture them from afar and and she she keeps at it for years you know um and so so there you have echoes of uh echoes of snow white of course uh with the with the wicked queen who's sometimes a witch in some versions of the story and and sometimes not uh but yeah so you have the motherhood as being this very fragile thing that once it has been negated once it's been destroyed there's there's really nothing left to keep back the flood of evil that is apparently always waiting to come in and destroy children in the Grimm's world mm -hmm. it's a uh, you you hit i think on a, a really strong and important thing is, is the reference that this is not the birth mother. I mean, at the very beginning of the tale, it, there's this reference. If our mother only knew what was happening to us, um, because a real mother would not treat her children this way. That's the implication of the of the text there. And this concept of the untrustworthiness of stepmothers is a really a recurring thing, not only just in Grimm's fairy tales, but in in fairy tales in general. Um, there's a a parallel story uh, to this one in Basile's uh, Italian collection, the Pentamerone. Uh, and uh, that story, which is again about this stepmother who uh, has driven out the, uh, a little brother and sister into the woods. Um, it begins with this introduction, and I think it's worth reading. Woe to him who thinks to find a governess for his children by giving them a stepmother. He only brings into his house the cause of their ruin. 
There never yet was a stepmother who looked kindly on the children of another, or if by chance such a one were ever found, she would be regarded as a miracle and be called a white crow. Um, <laughs> it's 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 interesting because the Brothers Grimm, again, Wilhelm, seems to have taken this very seriously, this idea, because when you look at the early version of some of these stories, it's not a stepmother who's being uh, mean towards the child. It's the original mother. Oh, interesting. So Hansel, Hansel and Gretel, it's the original mother. Uh, in the original edition of Snow White in, in Grimm's telling, it's, it's the mother. It's only later editions that change it to a second wife or a stepmother. And, uh, I mean, this has obviously had, I think, implications for for uh, the relations between children and, and their step-parents. Uh, yeah, down I think it the... must be very difficult to be a stepmother in a post-Grimm mm-hmm. world. <laughs> I think so. I think so. David, do you, do you spot anything here about mothers that you want to draw out, or fathers, for that matter? Well, yeah. I mean, you're, you're right that the king, as as father of little sister's child, is uh, he's he's kind of a non-entity in that role. Um, he does serve to uh, to parallel her in a certain way. Um, she functions as the uh, the one who is delivering her brother from um, malevolent magic earlier in the story by giving him warnings. Um, uh, similarly, uh, he he hears her words and then eventually uh, intervenes, and it's it's kind of the reversal. Instead of the um, hearing preventing, hearing preventing, hearing failing to prevent bad outcome, it's hearing in action, hearing in action, hearing in action, hearing acting, and reversing the bad outcome. Um. But that's in his capacity as husband, not in his capacity as father. Um, I, I think it's interesting that the stepmother, uh, the, the evil witch stepmother, seems seems to to want to even extend the the evil stepmotherness into a next generation by pulling a switch between uh, little sister and her own daughter, who then you know, presumably replaces little sister as the mother of, of little sister's child. Um, uh, just bizarre. I had always assumed that this, this weird, um, I guess what strikes us as weird antipathy to stepmothers might've made more sense in, um, in a culture in which, uh, primogenitor inheritance was the norm. Um, when there might be, because of a high rate of of uh, maternal death, especially uh, in childhood and things like that, when in a culture where it would be more common for a man to remarry and have children, um, knowing that the children of a previous wife um, are going to prevent your own children from inheriting, um, might be something that that creates a, a barrier to. Um, to connection or to affection um, in, the, in that kind of context. And I don't know, we, it seems as if we have almost like a fairy tale version of that in this story. Um, there is this, it turns out that 
the evil stepmother actually did have her own child who, unlike little sister, um, is depicted as uh, deformed and unattractive um, in that kind of fairy tale way in which, you know, you know, good people are beautiful and evil people are not. Um, you know, she's not introduced until that, until the point in the story when little sister marries the king and now suddenly uh, stepsister steps in from the, the, the shadowed margin and says, I think that I deserved that outcome and her mother acts on her behalf. So, so there's this uh, kind of a, a second, a second theme of sibling displacement that goes along with parental displacement. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's one that again comes up a lot in a lot of fairy tales in, in things like Cinderella or in, mm -hmm. in Grimm's tales, it's called Ashenputtel, but I mean, same idea. Um, one thing, Just a one thing that of... occurs to me about uh, about the stepmother dynamic is that in our society, most of the time when you have a stepmother, it's because the natural parents have gotten a divorce. But here, you have a stepmother because the mother died, probably in childbirth. Mm -hmm. You know, just statistically speaking. So, I mean, there, there's this kind of primal fear lurking underneath all of these lost mother, evil stepmother stories that I, I think. We can understand because no child wants to lose its mother, but that I, I think would have been much more real to the people who were telling these stories to begin with. Mm -hmm. And it's it's worth pointing out that uh, while the Brothers Grimm don't lose their mother as a child, they do lose their father when they're very young. I think the oldest is 11 at that point, and it does drive them into these kind of difficult financial straits. I, I don't know to what extent these kind of this this growing up with only one parent because she didn't remarry, which would have been I think uncommon for a woman at the time. If if she couldn't remarry, she probably would have. But um, I don't know to what extent that influences uh, the 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 phobia around a step parent, which shows up so often in in the Grimm's tales. Um, uh, the uh, the king, uh, we, we did point out, you know, he does kind of represent a, a bit of a father. Um, but the absent or complicit father is, is again, a recurring theme in yeah. in Grimm's tales. Like Hansel and Gretel, the mother is saying, you know, let's take these children out and abandon them. And the, the father doesn't want to do it, but he does do it. Um, he complains. He doesn't. Uh, and this happens a lot in these stories. So these, I think, I think... Uh, the king even here has a, a bit of that absence reflected. He doesn't notice that his wife has been replaced. Um, in this telling of the tale, it, it takes pains to try to explain that. You know, the 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 witch has encouraged him to close the curtains and, and not to look too closely because the wife is exhausted and tired and everything. But uh, in the first version of the tale, it just says he didn't realize that he had a false wife. Um, so there's no excusing it. He just isn't observant enough. And <laughs> frankly, in the first version of the of the tale, he just marries her. It says because she was the most beautiful girl. And uh, well, whatever you know, reason that... is there? Exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's um, the the one last thing I might point out here is that most of these stories are are told by mothers to their children. Yeah, um, I was just thinking that. 
so there's a dynamic here which I, I don't know how that ties in exactly to to this but I mean the fairy tale genre is often mothers to children um, at least at this point in time so there's probably something we could pull out of that there but uh, there are some more things I'd like to look at in this tale so let's move on mothers um, or grandmothers if I might toss that in because mm-hmm. um, frequently, uh, if you're talking about an agricultural context, um, the able-bodied women would be out in out in the fields or doing other um, other labor, agricultural labor, um, whereas the elderly frequently were the ones who were caring for the children um, mm-hmm. as as being less able to. So th- thus, you get that that saying, "Old wives." fables it's not mm-hmm. just that the fables are old it's that the the, the wives are old <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's a good point that's a good point and one we shouldn't especially in a in a culture in which mothers and fathers seem to to die a lot the the older generation is really responsible in a lot of times to to raising these children um well, a key theme in Grimm's fairy tales is that of justice. By the end of the story, the wicked are usually punished and the innocent are usually rewarded. David, are these happily ever afters just wish fulfillment or do they serve another purpose? You might consider them wish fulfillment if the stories were otherwise relatively realistic. Right. If it was a story in which... Um, someone's bad or abusive parent is bad or abusive or neglectful in um, mundane ways, perhaps painful or even extreme ways. But um, driving forth these children and then attempting to uh, have them (laughs) metamorphosed into wild animals uh, out of sheer vindictiveness uh, is, yeah, that, that, that's, that's a little extreme. Um, so, so on one level, even the menace itself is of this kind of magical fairy tale sort. So it's not just the justice at the end, uh, the the happy turn at the end. Uh, even the even the um, the happily ever after is fairy tale, but so is the uh, unfortunately before, <laughs> also fairy tale. One thing. Uh, one function that fairy tales serve, and that I'm, I'm drawing this from uh, from Chesterton. Uh, this is from uh, an essay of his called The Red Angel, published in a collection called Tremendous Trifles. And this is a this is a longish longish clip, so uh, strap in. A lady has written me, says Chesterton, an earnest letter saying that fairy tales ought not to be taught to children, even if they are true. She says that it is cruel to tell children fairy tales because it frightens them. You might just as well say that it is cruel to give girls sentimental novels because it makes them cry. All this kind of talk is based on the complete forgetting of what a child is like, which has been the firm foundation of many educational schemes. If you keep bogeys and goblins away from children, they will make them up for themselves. One small child in the dark can invent more hells than Swedenborg. One small child can imagine monsters too big and black to get into any picture and give them names too unearthly and cacophonous to be uh, to have occurred in the cries of a lunatic. The child, to begin with, commonly likes horrors and continues to indulge in them even when he does not like them. 
the timidity of the child is entirely reasonable. They are alarmed at this world because this world is a very alarming place. They dislike being alone because it is verily and indeed an awful idea to be alone. Fairy tales, then, are not responsible for producing in children fear or any of the shapes of fear. Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly. That is in the child already because it is in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of bogey. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of a bogey. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. So that's Chesterton, and Chesterton is always is always glib, and he always says things in a very kind of, you know, this is the universal principle way, and, and often that's, you know, that's his idiosyncratic experience or analysis. But still, I think he's getting at something here, um, which is that, you know, children are... Uh, I remember being a fearful child and it was stories of imagination who, who that taught me the possibility that the dangers that I feared might be overcome. Uh, something like that, you know, you could, you could see that, you could see that in this story. Um, you know, if, if lurking behind this fairy tale is the real fears of death and separation um, from a beloved parent um, or in, in, in this case, even from a sibling, um, that, that those fears might, might also be countered, um, in, in a certain way, I think is, uh, I think is one of the functions of the justice in this story. There is a king who steps in at the end, and he says, uh, the wicked get what they deserve, and the good get what they deserve. Um, it's a kind of apocalypse, uh, so there's a there's a sort of eschatological imagination going on in many of these fairy tales. Um, sometimes the punishments uh, are uh, as poetic as they are outlandish. Um, I'm not really certain uh, how the uh, being torn apart by beasts works as a as a poetic uh, justice, but the witch being burnt um, makes a certain kind of sense, particularly given that the way that they killed the queen or little sister was by smothering her in a bathroom in which they'd lit a fire, and so she's asphyxiated. It's Um, it's worth noting there, uh, David, that by leaving the children in the forest or having them flee to this forest, the the witch wanted the brother to become a wild animal to devour the little mm -hmm. girl. So Oh, the idea of being devoured by animals really does bookend that one as a as a just punishment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That were See, there we go. It worked. It works perfectly. Turns out. Turns out that this tale is has way more symmetry than we thought. Um. Also, we forget that the error. It's not just the wicked witch and her punishment. It's also the brother and his error. Um, the little sister uh, warns him twice, and then when he comes to a third stream, um, she's not quick enough with her warning, or he's, or he's too quick with his desire, or or his self restraint is too weak. And there's that um, that passing of the test two times, but then he falls. 
so there there's that uh, this this kind of a parallel um he also falls into a kind of judgment but it's not the judgment of the malicious that you see in Dante's hell it's the judgment of uh the incontinent the judgment of those who who fail to restrain their desires sufficiently um and while it, what what awaits the malicious at the end of this fairy tale is uh is violent justice what awaits um the one who fell through an excess of desire and a lack of 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 wisdom um he finds restoration and that's a grace that we all hope for i think but there's a contrapasso um tendency in his own punishment right because when he's the mm-hmm. when he's the deer he can't keep himself from wanting to go run away from the hunters like he's safe inside this yeah. house but he just can't stop himself from going and joining in the chase i thought that was a very interesting detail yeah he's still dominated by that beast nature michael do you have any other comments here on uh on the happily ever afters or the the meeting out of justice at the end of these stories no i don't think so i think david covered it very nicely Mm mm-hmm I like the uh, the idea of poetic justice that shows up in a lot of these tales. I mean, you get the wicked witch in Hansel and Gretel who gets baked in her own oven, or the false princess in The Goose Girl who um, pronounces really her own sentence. She's asked what should happen to a to a, a, a faithless servant, and she says, "Well, she should be dragged naked in a barrel full of spikes until dead." And of course, this false princess is is the faithless servant in reality and so she gets the punishment that she's declared um uh, there's parallels there i think to just biblical ideas too i mean david hearing uh, nathan talk about the lamb and saying well this person should be punished and nathan turning around and saying you're the man you know you've pronounced judgment on yourself or haman uh when he chooses the reward which the king ends up bestowing on mordecai and then ends up dying on the gallows he had built for Mordecai. Um, this kind of just punishment for the for the sins you've done. Um, I, I thank you also for bringing in that uh, passage from Chesterton. I like the idea of um, fairy tales telling us that dragons can be defeated, um, and ultimately that there's that eschatological element that they're defeated at the end of things um, that justice will be meted out even if we suffer many things until that final uh, deliverance of justice well they, they help you to take evil seriously but also not too seriously when i was a kid i was just convinced there were hundreds of wolves just waiting to eat me because i read all these fairy tales and you know the wolves were a bigger deal in in 17th century europe than they are in 20th 21st century america um but then at the same time whatever's done by these evil entities gets undone just like it does here right the 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 sister comes back to life because evil is strong but it doesn't have the final word and I mean that's the that's the Tolkienian you catastrophe, right? The 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 happy mm-hmm. ending after the sad ending. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think Tolkien might show up here a bit more in in one of our later questions too. But uh, absolutely, I agree. Um, 
Well, Michael, Grimm's fairy tales tend to have clear good guys and 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 clear bad guys. But in contemporary retellings, uh, these black and white distinctions are often eschewed in favor of, of more complex characters, more complex motivations, and, and sometimes more complex endings. The, the, the way the stories end changes. So what do you think that impulse says about our time? What And are there any positives and negatives that you see in this kind of reinterpretation? Well, I'll say that they are black and white in a certain way, but in another way, as, as I think we were saying about the... Uh, the Icelandic sagas we read a couple weeks ago, they're um, they're so foreign and they're so terse and they're so um, there's so little comment that it ends up kind of looping back around to not being black or white at all. Hence our hence our confusion with the action of this story. It's it's clear that the witch is evil. It's clear that the sister is good what exactly is going on is not always quite so clear. So I, I, I do think there's some ambiguity, not exactly moral ambiguity, but metaphysical ambiguity going on in these stories. Mm-hmm. I'll also point out that the the practice of taking a folk story and reversing good and evil goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Um, characters who are good in one version of the story end up being bad in another version of the story. And it, it, it makes for a richer mythology. So if Crayon is the good guy, more or less, and Oedipus the king, he ends up being the bad guy, more or less, in Antigone. And, I you know, I, I, that's interesting. Um, I think in contemporary literature, it really takes off with John Gardner's novel Grindel, which retells the Beowulf story from the monster's point of view. I read that for my dissertation, for my... Um, my comprehensive exams. I don't remember much except not liking it. I imagine Grubbs has thoughts on Grendel. I don't actually. For whatever reason, I've just I've just never gotten around to reading it. Um, it is it is one though that I can. I have absolutely had students come into my sophomore literature survey who said, "Well, we didn't we we didn't read Beowulf in high school. We just read Grendel." Well, how do you read mm. Grendel without reading the the source material? That doesn't make any sense. Exactly, exactly. Mm. It's like watching the re, it's like watching the reboot reversal without uh, without having actually cons- you know knowing the, the the story as it as it was, in which case there is no reversal, and then they would end up folding the characterization of Grendel in Gardner's novel back up into Beowulf, where, where it doesn't belong. Or Grendel is much more straightforwardly, you know, evil. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. To clarify for our listeners, if they don't know the novel, I mean, it's it's the concept here that Grendel is a misunderstood monster in that novel, is it not? Yes. He's he's a kind of existentialist hero misunderstood by society. And, you know, Gardner has a serious moral purpose behind writing that. And I'm, I'm not against that practice as long as it's done well. Uh, I think in the recent spate of Disney Grindel-like movies, um, the new one is uh, <laughs> Cruella de Vil. Is it just called Cruella? Yes. Uh, and and before that, you had two Maleficent movies. I, I don't think there's a serious moral purpose from anything I've been able to see. I, I will confess that I haven't watched those movies, so I can't. I can't make blatant, you know, full-out statements about them. But from everything I've said, it, it, seen, it looks just like kind of a cheap trick um, to to 
milk some more money out of that particular intellectual property. Well, they're playing off of Wicked, if I remember. Uh, and I was right going to bring up Wicked. Mm-hmm. Wicked is another one where you're you're getting the story just before the Wizard of Oz from the the supposedly Wicked Witch, Witch of the West's point of view, and really it's about the relationship between her and Glinda, the Good Witch, and that it's not nearly as nasty as the movie makes it seem. And and I haven't read the novel that that's based on, but I have seen the Broadway musical, and I I do think that that is a morally serious work with with something to say i i think probably its ethics are are kind of standard issue late 20th century liberal ethics but it is it is a movie that or a, excuse me it is a play that's trying to do something and it, it does it interestingly nothing i've seen about maleficent makes it look all that interesting i, I believe that her backstory is the reason she hates king stefan and his family is that he Oh, he wouldn't have raped her because it is a family movie, but the the implication is it's some sort of metaphorical rape that he's committed uh, on her, and that's why she hates them. But that's so much less interesting than the original Disney movie where she is just this kind of evil force that that hates the good for no reason. And you can say, well, that's not that's not that's not a morally interesting stance to take, right? That oh, evil has no reason for hating good it just does i you know I, I i think maybe after centuries and centuries and centuries of that sort of attitude maybe uh it had stopped being interesting but now in the in the era of anti-heroes and and you know just aggressive moral grayness uh a, a return to the kind of evil is evil and hates good because it's good uh, I, I think that might actually be the more morally interesting perspective to take just because the other one is so um, so culturally dominant right now. Mm-hmm. You, you, no, I'd, I'd yeah, go with when that. When everything undermines it, it's no longer an undermining. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You can't be transgressive when everyone's doing it. And, and the idea is to, I, I guess, is to give you new levels of empathy for... Um, for these characters. And I, I guess I can, I can understand the value in that if you don't believe that there's such a thing as evil. Now, if you're talking about an actual human being, that's different. But the, the thing about the fairy tales is there is a, there is an actual entity called evil. I mean, the woman's name is Maleficent. You know, it's, it's not, there's not ambiguity <laughs> yeah. there. Like that, that, that story is there to help you grapple with the fact that there is evil in the world. And if you go around mm. making it, oh, well, you know, she's not actually evil. She's just, she just has PTSD because she was raped by this person you thought was good. I, I, I just, I fail to understand the, the benefit of that really, unless, unless you just don't believe there's such a thing as evil. And by by extension, that there's such a thing as good, right. because the other the flip side to this is that good characters also have these complicating uh, motives uh, in these retellings of these stories. The, the way you can do it most easily is by turning it around and making the good character the bad character. Which I mm-hmm. my recollection, it's been ten years since I saw Wicked, but my recollection is it does not do that. Glinda is not a bad guy in in Wicked. No, I think it's just the everyone misinterprets uh, the quote-unquote Wicked Witch of the West's actions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The music in that is great. I, uh, I've, I've listened to the music much more recently than I've seen the, the actual play. I think they're finally mm-hmm. making a movie out of it. I can't believe they didn't make one 10 years ago, 20 years ago. 
That is astonishing. 15, I guess it would be 20. This reminds me a little of the other 2014 Disney offering, which came out um, the same year as Maleficent, and that was Into the Woods. Oh, yeah. And that was, again, a a rehashing of a a musical that had come out uh, a number of years earlier. I think in the 80s, actually, the first uh, productions of that come out. I I think that's right. That's a Sondheim musical. Yeah, and uh, you get this uh, kind of situation where you have, you know, it's a retelling of, of some traditional fairy tales, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk, um, Little Red Riding Hood, but they're all mashed together in this Grimsian woods. And uh, you do get the traditional happily ever after, except it comes in the middle of the movie. And after that, everything goes downhill. Um, the, the happily ever after proves to be the sham. Good characters like uh, Prince Charming turn out not to be so good after all. Bad characters like the witch or even the giant are not so bad. And a song near the end of the the Disney film, at least, I, I haven't seen the musical, so I'm not sure if it has it. But uh, there's a song there with a couple lines that say things like, wrong things, right things, who can say what's true? People make mistakes, fathers, mothers, witches can be right, giants can be good. You decide what's right, you decide what's yeah. good. And I mean, you can't get more obvious than this, the, the this concept that... Uh, ambiguity of truth of goodness of justice um that that these things should be embraced as ambiguous and uh i mean i I think that has (laughs) bad implications for the world in general although perhaps we're reaching a point where we're reaching a new moralism anyhow so maybe these maybe these concepts are falling on on deaf ears anyhow well and that's why that's why what you said that that it's you know, you end up having to undermine good. What you end up getting is just a new morality where Maleficent is our innocent victim and King Stefan is the monster. And again, I have mm-hmm. not seen that movie, so I can't I can't say that that's exactly what happens, but that's my understanding of what happens. You know, one of the reasons we called the show before they were live, our, our show about Disney movies, is because it gave Josh and I an excuse not to watch any of those live action movies. And, and I have mostly I have mostly <laughs> kept up with it. Well, I, I confess I haven't watched the uh, Maleficent ones, and I only watched Into the Woods in advance of this one because I knew it was deliberately trying to deal with a number of of uh, Grimm's tales. And see, I think Into the Woods is a very good show, um, but you're right, morally, it's it's kind of kind of horrifying. It fits very well into Stephen Sondheim's thing. You know, it's it's like an existentialist fairy tale. Mm-hmm. 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 But I might be more inclined to cut Stephen Sondheim slack than I should be. <laughs> I, it, it seems to me that what it's doing is taking the reason the reason kids get fairy tales is because it taps into this deep deep mystery about human life, and it it it, it presents it to them in a way they can understand. Adults have to approach that mystery from a different direction because we've grown too cynical for the one that's being told to children. And I, I think that I think that Into the Woods and Grindel and, and the, the, the kind of wicked and, and the kind of smart versions of that reversal are trying to give us the darkness of those fairy tales in a way that makes sense to contemporary adults. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well that, well, that brings up, I think... Uh... 
a good question. I mean, fairy tales are often treated primarily as children's literature. Um, but C.S. Lewis, in the dedication to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, once suggested that even though we might outgrow fairy tales for a time, we eventually grow old enough to start reading fairy tales again. So, David, what do you think Lewis is getting at, and why might we wish to return to fairy tales even after we've left the nursery? Mm. So there's uh, there's an impulse in the maturation of a child to put away those things that mark the previous stage. Um, I don't do that anymore. That's a baby thing. Um, I don't like that show anymore. I don't like that book. I don't like that toy. That's a that's that's a marker of of a child who is who is younger than me. So. Um, you know, there's this, this shedding of, uh, sh shedding of, of, of pleasures, uh, as, as you, um, mature, that's an ordinary part of maturation. Not that you shed all of it. Um, there are some things that I've consistently liked since I was very small. Um, fortunately, uh, I, I didn't throw away a lot of those things <laughs> so that I'm, ab I'm actually able to go back to them, which I think that is something that, um, that happens as you uh, – once you've sort of reached adulthood or, or maybe even um, some points in time on the way to adulthood, adulthood um, you start to uh, have, a, have a sense of um, nostalgia for what comes before. Uh, and nostalgia is it's, it's kind of a it's it's a weak word, but it's one that we've talked about a lot on this show. Um, trying to uh, fold a strength back into it. Um, this isn't just sentimentalism. Um, it's the idea that there are certain um, certain joys, certain pleasures, certain um, ways that we learned about ourselves and the world, the ways that we were first introduced to them that were um, potent. Uh, vivid, and uh, we never laid hold on those things again with quite the power that we did than when we first laid hold on them. Um, I remember the first the first book that I ever read that didn't consist mainly of pictures um, that had chapters. Um, it was when I retell that story to myself, it ends up falling into the pattern of of Joseph Campbell's monomyth, <laughs> um, even down to me descending into the dark cave of my bedroom with a flashlight to keep reading when I was supposed to be taking a nap. Um, that I think is is powerful for us. Uh, that that desire to return to um, that which was fresh and vivid and colorful, um, that which was uh, real. And so I, while fairy tales did not precisely serve that function for me because I wasn't raised reading them, um, I discovered them later. Uh, they were higher up on the bookshelf. Um, I read them. I read Grimm's fairy tales at the same time that I was reading um, Edith Hamilton's um, synopses of Greek mythology and Norse mythology. I saw them as something like that. Um, but the way that I feel still about <laughs> about Richard Scarry and Lowly Worm and 
those, those sorts of things. Um, I, perhaps that's the way uh, way C.S. Lewis is talking about feeling about um, fairy tales, or the way that I feel about a Hardy Boys a Hardy Boys novel, or the Narnia books themselves, which were first read to me, not read by me. Um, so there is some this this desire to to reclaim um, what was fresh and bright and is remembered with love. And I think that's I think that's good and important. Um, it's uh, I think it's a perilous thing to think that um, the grayness and the ambiguity and the endless disappointment that leads to cynicism and hardness um, that our culture associates with reality. Uh, I think confusing that with reality is just soul killing. Um, our culture, I think, is rebelling against that, but instead is retreating into um, a pure self-determined fantasy, uh, which I think is also um, a bad reaction. The uh, um, I reject your reality and replace it with my own, as if that is the only option. Um, I think Lewis and Chesterton before him would say that fairy tales point to something different. Uh, that there is a reclamation of what is real and vivid and colorful and alive and full of virtue and life. Um, that it's not merely an assertion of our fantasy over against the cold, dead, soul-killing world. Hmm. And Michael, um, what about you? Do you, do you see a, a value in, in returning to the fairy tales uh, the way that they were originally composed. I mean, we, we talked about some of the the reasons why contemporary retellings might uh, might be worthwhile for audiences. But is there a reason to go back to the originals, even though we're adults? Yeah, I think so. I think you 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 go past the sort of cynicism and despair that produces Into the Woods, and you you want something purer again. Um, I, I I do think there's not only a hunger for that there's um, you know there's there's real value in that and that's that's something we we get at on before they were live a lot now those those versions are those, those versions of the fairy tales are substantially sanitized from the grim originals but um, <laughs> but I, I I I do think that's what we're talking about the 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 idea is that. When you're a kid, those those fairy tales are, are a window into the mystery of life that kind of gets shut on you as you grow up. When you're, I don't know, whatever age you stop, appreciate whatever age you you get too cool for that stuff. And and I don't know, as an as an adult, I have found myself drawn back to those. Um, to those windows um, and, and I, I feel like once again I can access them uh, not quite the way I did when I was a kid but uh, in, in a way that lets me see through them again mm -hmm. and I mean Lewis has another essay that he wrote for the New York Times back in the day where he uh, where he said that sometimes fairy tales say best what what needs to be said so this idea that Sometimes fairy tales are the window that helps us to to look at the world or to recapture that sense of wonder uh, in the world and to recapture that sense of, of justice 
as a as a true thing, whether or not we see it expressed in our daily life. Um, I mean, I think at their heart, fairy tales have you know these two purposes: to to entertain and and to teach. Not in not in an allegorical sense, but by providing these models or windows, as you say, uh, into the world. Um, so, little brother and little sister, which we talked about today, it you know you can't boil it down. I think to one specific moral, but the principles on display: the this idea of the little sister protecting her brother, the queen, even after she's dead. Uh, caring for her for her little infant, the desire that justice would be done, that the witch and her daughter would be um, overturned and not allowed to triumph. These are things that are modeled in the tale without needing to be explicitly taught. But I think that modeling is good not just for children, but but also for us too, who do live in this this gray world that uh, that we've been talking about. Well, before our tale ends, um, I just want to ask both of you if you have any further thoughts on fairy tales you want to share with our listeners or any suggestions for fairy tales or fairy tale influenced uh, works that they should check out. Um, so, so, David, do you have any final thoughts? Well, I do love fairy tales. Uh, I love uh, folklore of, of many cultures uh, generally. Um, so, so. Those those are good. Um, Grim, Grimm's are good, but uh, there are many many other collections out there to be found. One uh, essay that's that's worth uh, worth looking up uh, is uh, George MacDonald has an uh, has an essay on writing fairy tales. I don't have the title right in front of me, um, but uh, George MacDonald himself uh, wrote many fairy tales. And uh, those are also worth worth getting at. And for him, it was very much about um, using them as a a medium through which um, truth is seen. So uh, I, I recommend those. In terms of more recent things that have been written that give me the feelings that I get when I read um, a really good fairy tale. Um, I would recommend Susanna Clarke's novels, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, and then her newer novel, uh, Piranesi, mm-hmm. um, or Piranesi. I'm not really quite sure. I've never heard any, anyone else say that name aloud. Um, but both of them are uh, – they're highly imaginative, but they get at uh, a lot of the kinds of um, strange, dark, but also wildly beautiful – things that you can find in a really good fairy tale uh, and uh, I, I love I love finding something new that can make me feel like that so I recommend them hmm. Michael well I guess I would recommend that our listeners listen to before they were alive if they don't already um, but I would also say be careful thinking of these as simple or especially be careful not to think of them as simplistic. These arise from the centuries of people talking. They, they arise from these folk ways that give us an awful lot of what we take for granted as a culture. And because of that, they're, they're indirect in some ways. There's a lot of kind of spooky depth to them. 
they don't always make perfect sense and that is one of the things that gives them their power to continue to move us and shock us and make us love them so um maybe it's just reiterating some things we've already said but they're not for they're not just for children they're not maybe even primarily for children and and they're they're a window into a mystery that used to be much more widespread than it is now because we think we've banished it with contemporary society and technology and you know we've we've closed the woods off but in fact um they're still there and fairy tales give us a glimpse of them hmm. um, i i like that uh comment on on how while we have these written forms of the stories they're kind of a distillation of centuries of, of oral tradition um, it reminds me how the story of cinderella for example um, yes, there's the Grimm's Tale version and, and the Perot version, which from which we get our most common understandings of it. But that story goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. There's a there's a story, a Cinderella story that's recorded by a Greek historian um, from ancient Egypt. And it, it's amazing to see how these stories traveled much further than uh, than we give credit uh, for people having traveled back in these days right uh, egypt korea all of these places have the same story which reminds us that it it really does tap into something um universal in some ways yeah something that goes um, back that far over that many societies there's something in it that you can't just dismiss mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah one thing I've I've mentioned a little bit today was the difference between the Brothers Grimm tales, the way we typically see them today, and the way they were originally published. If you want to see the difference between those, there's a couple of books you can look at. Um, uh, there's a 2016 uh, book called The Original Folk and Fairy Tales of the Brothers Grimm, which gives us the original fir- first and second volumes uh translated from from the way they were originally written um, which are much sparser much simpler and probably much more faithful to the uh to the tales as originally told by the people talking to the grims um there's another book also called grims grimmest um which collects just 19 of these original tales but um focusing on some of the the grimmer and gorier uh, aspects of these tales that we tend to forget were part of the stories um so if that's if that's your interest into it that might be one way to look at these early forms but i think that about wraps up our time for today and it also if i'm not mistaken wraps up our season of the christian humanist podcast the podcast will be returning in the fall and at that time your regular host nathan gilmore should also be returning i want to say thank you to david and michael for inviting me to fill in as an interim host over the past few months it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for filling in. Uh, I feel like we've read a bunch of stuff that we would not have otherwise read and talked about. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed hearing you as well. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's definitely been fun for me. And uh, having listened to it for about a decade, it's, it's kind of fun to, to, to be on the other side of the speaker, as it were. Um, well, thanks for joining us for this week's discussion. If you have any comments, you can let us know by sending an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or by visiting our website at www.christianhumanist.org. 
You can also find us on Twitter at CH Radio Network. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. On behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, as well as the absent Nathan Gilmore, this is Matthew Block saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>